Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And I have been so thrilled to talk with our new contributor, Dr. Christine Gibson, just about her amazing work in really what I think is the most important topic of the day, which is trauma-informed care and how we deal with all the traumas in our life, but also just as a human being who cares deeply about community and about personal healing and about a holistic approach to how we actually integrate our wellness. So it's so good to see you again, Christine, and I'm so happy to have you back from all of your travels safe and sound. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be chatting again. If I talk to people who've endured a lot of trauma, I think the holidays are burning the most difficult time for people. Yeah, I hear that too. Um, I, I think there's a huge combination of factors. Um, was that a question or was that hypothetical? Because no, I'm like, that was I could definitely <laughs> just go, just um, go with it. For for one thing, for those of us in the global north, there is such a huge shortening of days. So like we yeah. have less daylight. And for those of us who are forced into daylight savings time, like such a weird thing to be coming home from work in the dark and like really never see the light. And for folks who live in further north, you know, the sun just never comes up anymore. So I do think there is like a physiologic component to it um, yeah. that a lot of people don't have seasonal affective disorder. Like they don't get a full blown depression, but they just kind of get like the blahs. I know totally. I do. So trying to get outside in the sunshine when it's around is something that is can be helpful. And and for those who, who can't, plug a sad lamp in. Um, totally. I actually wake up with this like radio that like gets brighter and brighter and brighter and then starts playing bird song. I'm like, oh, that's so lovely and peaceful. And it kind of makes me feel like the sun is rising. Um, I don't think that should be underestimated in terms of why people call it holiday blues, because even if you have grown up in that area, you're acclimatized to that particular zone, there's something that happens as we get older that our pineal gland doesn't take in as much of the light as we need to, to create the serotonin that we need. And finding that sun. Is that true? I've never heard of that. It is absolutely true. Interesting. I've talked huh. to like so many I'm ocular that. specialists about it. So Amazing. That because that's where our pineal gland is actually what takes in the light, which creates the serotonin, which creates all of the good feelings that we need to be able to survive winters. And it's fascinating to me that we think about the holiday blues, our reaction to trauma without the physiological component. So thank you for bringing it up. Yeah. 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 I think that's, that's definitely a part of like the seasonal issue you know, family is often a fraught thing. So whether or not you are going home and enjoy time with your family, a lot of us find that we put masks on, like who our family expects us to be. We've often had these different phases in our life and our family's been exposed more or less to that. So they don't always have the fullest picture of who we are in the present, especially for those of us you know, achieving post-traumatic growth and learning and changing, we might still find ourselves in these patterns where we used to be stuck. And for family members who are who are still stuck too. And then there's lots of people that don't have a community to spend the holidays with. Loneliness is a huge epidemic. Your ex-surgeon general is spending a lot of time talking about how dangerous loneliness is. And this is one of the holiday seasons when it just, it feels so raw and insurmountable for a lot of people. And folks. it's also just so much worse now with social media where all of the imagery is at your thumb every single moment where if you're a 
alone and um, scrolling, you have these images that everyone else is doing well. Everyone else is surrounded by friends and family. Everyone else has enough money to be able to enjoy the holidays. And here I am in my own solo existence. And that cannot be good for people. Absolutely. And you, you also hit the nail on the head with that money issue too. Like the incentive to, you know, buy your way into happiness at the holiday season is so large. And so many people are struggling now with the cost of energy, cost of food, like things are really shifting. Um, And I, I think more people are struggling than I've ever seen in my practice. And that's, you know, more than 20 years now. You know, I want to kind of go through each of those just one by one, if we can, because I think they all deserve a little spotlight. And first of all, the idea that Christmas somehow became this economic engine for Cyber Monday and Spending Friday. And like, let's just remind people like what Christmas could be about if we actually got down to the essence of how we could use this holiday as a time to reconnect with the people we really love. Yeah. When that's available. So like, I love the idea of it being about connection, but one of the things I tell a lot of the folks I work with is connection can be with others when that's available to you. And for some folks it's family versus chosen family. Um, And others, you know, there's, there's distance, whether that's physical or emotional distance, that is pretty hard to um, to close even for holidays. And so in those instances, I often say, well, there's so many other ways to connect. So you can connect with yourself mm. in a deeper way. So mm. create a practice around, you know, do Kristen enough self-compassion exercises or um, give yourself a routine of self-care. So in Ayurvedic medicine, one of the most beautiful things I learned when I studied the counseling was for people, you would choose different kinds of oil depending on your your dosha or your energy balance. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that they taught us was to massage your hands and your feet and your face before you go to bed. And I was like, what an amazing act of self-care that everyone could and should do. So, right. you know, there's so many beautiful things that you can introduce into your team to, to connect more closely to yourself. Mm. And then there's also the ability to connect with nature and connecting to spirituality for some people is really mm. important. So whether or not you do that in community, you might have a spiritual community available to you, whether that's in person or online. There's so many different ways to connect. And I I, I love that suggestion of making this season a season of connection. What you just talked about, um, the willingness to have intimacy with ourselves, I think if we could teach that, we could curb half of suicide. I really do, because I think suicide so often is the feeling that I am completely alone in my suffering, and there is no one else who understands how awful this is. Mm -hmm. And yet, what so many of the people who are suffering lack is a love of themselves, a feeling that they have their own back, that they are supporting their own dreams and wishes and hopes for survival, right? And so this idea of careful nurturing of each of our beings is so critical to me. What you just said, I think is so beautiful. And I hope nobody passes over that without going, oh yeah, let's rub our feet. No, developing a relationship with oneself to be able to be alone, but not lonely. Like how Mm -hmm. profound is that? 
Yeah, it's a real gift, especially in our culture, which is so hyper individualistic. Like yeah. the global majority, most of the people on the planet live in collectivist cultures where they are expected to raise a child as a village, where they they have this ability to live in these extended multi generational yeah. families. And we've really been socially conditioned out of these habits that were so nurturing. And so when we are left with ourselves as the thing that keeps us trotting along, it, it's hard when we don't have a safe relationship with ourselves and that it can take a lot of cultivating to create that even the the sense that you deserve it that you deserve self-care and self-compassion and it's also you know we're working up against capitalistic tendencies that said self-care is spending ten thousand dollars to go to a workshop where you can get massage every day and and i'm like wow when did self-care get co-opted by the people who want us to actually deplete our resources instead of like everyday things we can do to fill ourselves up. I love how we're talking about like the practical and then the existential at the same time, (laughs) because I... I feel like like so many of us do live with these big questions, like, what can I do for me? And then also like, oh my gosh, what is happening? Like, how do we commodify, you know, turn every single holiday into a thing where, you know, it's all about buying stuff. Totally. that doesn't make us happy. I mean, there's there's good evidence on this. Yeah. That's, that's not where happiness comes from. There's no limit to the stuff that's going to, you know, enrich your life. Um, I feel like even as a physician, a lot of the things that um, I was taught was that you have to, you know, be in perfect health and have all of these things kind of lined up around lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And what I'm really embracing is this Japanese concept of wabi-sabi or like imperfection and Mm. being good enough. Like you can be a good enough parent. You can be a good enough employee. You can be a good enough human on the world. For those of us who get this message, like you said, on social media, like Instagram messaging around the way that things should be and the way our family should look and the way our home should look. Mm. Hey, it's good enough. You know, like mm-hmm. I was thinking, should I clean my office a little bit more before we started recording? I was like, no, it's good enough. <laughs> and you know, it's so fascinating. Give myself a break. I'm so drawn to the pink scarf and your smile, right? I wouldn't even see in the background. <laughs> my dog here, stuff. <laughs> yeah. And here we are sort of like obsessing, like, should I be changing my background when we know if you're human and you're actually connecting with someone, I'm only looking at your eyes and your smile. There is something so wrong about the way we're currently being conditioned that we actually have to think about our backgrounds rather than our foreground. Oh, that's so well said. One of the things that's coming up in your book about trauma is the early patterning of trauma, especially if you were a child who was with an alcoholic or abusive parent during the holidays, that stuff is so likely to come up again, triggering itself, even with the first hand of cold in the air or the first feeling that, oh my gosh, I heard a Christmas song and suddenly I'm right back to when I was three or four. How can people outrun that or avoid it or cope with it? Yeah. um, Great question. Um, and, And it's true. One of the things I describe in the Modern Trauma Toolkit is that a lot of these things happen at a subconscious level. Like the way that our brain tries to protect us and keep us safe from threats 
is by storing the associations of when the threat happened to begin with. So Mm -hmm. if Christmas was a difficult time for you as a child or in a past relationship, those conditioning that your amygdala kind of stores the emotions that you had at that time, the physical sensations and the context. So context would be smells, textures, the sound of a Christmas song, and all of that will just awaken the memory. So any one of those things can trigger it. The feeling of instability. So a lot Mm -hmm. of us have that financial instability. That emotion itself can trigger that the feeling in those memories. So our brains do this to protect us. Like it is, it is a mechanism for survival, Mm. but because humans have evolved such complex lives and our innate survival strategies as mammals don't always work for us anymore because putting us into fight, flight, or freeze when we encounter these memories, isn't actually generally going to help us. I mean, yes, we might be able to turn around and leave the department store playing this music. Um, we might be able to uh, avoid the places where that smell is showing up, but the triggers do still happen. And, and I would probably relate this back to like the learning around self-care routines. For a lot of us, the first step is self-compassion and saying, oh my gosh, I wonder how this is protecting me rather than saying like, oh my gosh, what is wrong oh, with me? Yeah. Um, so that's a big first step. And then the second yeah. one is Noticing. So just even that awareness, that interoceptive awareness of the signals inside your body. Yeah. What is it my body is telling me about this? And instead of, you know, just being really personally involved in every aspect of that experience to also be the observer of that experience and say, how curious is it that my body is you know, my heart's pounding and I'm sweaty when I hear this. Mm. And so I am the body that's experiencing it, but I am also the observer of that body. Yeah. And that noticing experience is often enough to kind of break the connection. If it's not, then people need to learn skills to be able to depotentiate the associations that are in the amygdala. And a lot of what I think works for that are somatic techniques, which is why Mm -hmm. it was a large focus of my book was to say, well, what are the things that your body already knows how to do? Mm -hmm. And you could learn these things in just a few minutes. Like you can learn a lot of these skills, just read the chapter, watch the video. There's so many things that our body innately knows that allows us to calm ourselves down, to to rebalance the sympathetic and parasympathetic. Like simple skills that lots of people know could be things like box breathing, where Mm -hmm. you would actually change the length of the box, taking a longer inhale if you need more energy, taking a longer exhale if you need to release stress, progressive muscle relaxation. Like a lot of people know some simple tools. What my goal is, is just to say there are so many more out there Mm. and both for, you know, healthcare practitioners like myself. But I mean, honestly, if we could teach this stuff at school, I'd be really happy. (laughs) So a couple of years ago, there was a wonderful book written about the influence of the vagus nerve in all of this, that it's carrying a lot of this energy. And that once we've had this awakening in our body of past trauma or whatever, that we actually need to recapitulate all of that energy through our body. So do you subscribe to that idea that we, when we feel this emotion, that instead of thinking about it, instead of getting caught in this ruminating and perseverating, that we actually need to feel it in our body and release it in our body. Are you also a subscriber to that idea? I am to some extent. So okay. I, I I do know that a lot of cognitive therapies or brain-based therapies where you think your way out of the yes. 
um, patterns yeah. can be really helpful for lots of folks. While I don't tend to use those initially in trauma-based therapy, there are a lot of people where it is simple conditioning. It's like, well, I experienced this thing. And so it taught me this, this is my foundational belief. And if I can talk myself out of those foundational beliefs, mm. then I've changed my mind and I just mm. feel differently. So that would be kind of the premise of cognitive behavior therapy. And there's a lot of studies on it. It can be really efficacious. It works for lots of people. Yeah. In, in my line of work, when people are managing overwhelm, toxic stress and trauma, which I mean, more and more of us are these days. Totally. The body is such a good doorway because when your amygdalas are firing and telling you that there's something dangerous that's happening, one of the natural pathways that happens is you don't allow the, the connections between the part of your brain that's receiving signals and the part of your brain that does rational thought and what mm. we call executive functioning. So mm critical decision-making skills, impulse control, um, emotional regulation. That's all in our prefrontal cortex or the front of our brain. Yeah. And those connections actually disappear when our amygdalas are very busy telling us, hey, this organism is under threat. Mm. So the more that we are hijacked by those threat responses, again, that are trying to protect us, the more that somatic work sometimes metaphorical work. There's so many other doorways than cognitive. And I think as a physician, we just learned the cognitive. This yeah. like, we, we, we are like the scientists and the rational yeah, beings. Right. And so that yeah. makes sense. And it wasn't until I started taking a much deeper dive about eight years ago that I thought, oh my gosh, there's so many other doorways. And they're a little bit nicer. Like in cognitive behavior therapy, the, the way that we were talking about earlier, a lot of it is based on there's something wrong with the way you're thinking and we right. need to fix it. Mm -hmm. And then you're just adding shame on top of shame. Right. Um, I call it kind of like gaslighting yourself by saying like, well, there's something it wrong with the way you yeah, think. Totally. Yeah. When yeah. it was actually adaptive all along. Yeah. So yeah, I, I have complex ideas about it. And I know lots of people do really well with cognitive therapy, but once that overwhelm kicks in, open a different door. You've got yeah. so many available to you. Oh, will you promise me that we'll do an entire episode on somatic techniques, honestly, yeah. and I'll be your <laughs> guinea pig. In terms of setting boundaries for people who know that they're going to go into a heightened or um, erratic or really unhealthy situation with family or community or whatever at, at holidays, what do you suggest for them in terms of protecting themselves and making sure that they maintain their equilibrium? I suggest everyone learns to read their own signals. So a lot of times when we are in uncomfortable situations, we we do one of two things as humans. We either dampen the signals and start ignoring them. It's a little bit dissociative. It's kind of like, oh, this isn't happening. I just have to get through this. It's something that lots of kids learn because they actually can't escape the scenario. Yeah. But as adults, we often get pretty good at that too. We just push it down, push down our feelings, suppress it and get through. Dissociation is a tool we all have if that's what's going to get you through the holidays and then you can process your emotions when you're done. Yeah. That January. might be one thing you have to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think yeah. a lot of people can relate to that. So totally. um, that pattern of pushing down your feelings um, is something that happens to lots of folks. And for other folks, when they're in those situations that are triggering, the signals get heightened, they get overamplified and quickly mm. turns into that overwhelm can't relax, feeling really tense and agitated. That's when the sympathetic nervous system is taken over and is saying, fight or flight. And yeah. your brain is like, 
from what? What am I supposed to do? I think a lot of it is just an awareness. Does my body shut down and suppress and freeze? Mm. Or does my body ramp up and try to get really energetic and mm. restless and agitated? Because in those two scenarios, which involve the vagus nerve, like what yeah. you were describing before, these are kind of the branches of polyvagal theory about how humans respond to danger. Yeah. So once you kind of get to know your own patterns, then there's going to be different solutions for each one. Mm. So if your body's really shut down, you might have some practices to process your emotions. So the kind I teach in the book are things like havening, tapping, tremoring, that really lets you release a lot of that extra energy. And likewise, if you're in that overwhelmed feeling and you're dissociated, if you could allow yourself to process little bits of it, you could be a little bit more present with your family. The more that we learn self-regulating skills and bring ourselves into what Dan Siegel calls the window of tolerance, and somebody recently called the window of flexibility, and I just no, fell I in love, love with that. that term. Isn't that great? Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if so we can true. learn how to bring ourselves into that window of flexibility, mm. we've just got more options available to us. We might need to dissociate if there is someone really awful in the room saying terrible things and you socially just don't have the ability to grapple with what's happening in front of you. That might be the thing that gets you through it. For some other folks, that window of tolerance is going to look like bringing themselves down out of that overwhelm. And everyone's toolkit for that looks different. So it's why I, I suggest that the most important skill is to learn your own body signals, to learn which of those things you're going into. So that's what we yeah. call interoception is like, what is my body telling me about what's happening? We often disconnect from that when we go home to family because it's not something we often did as kids. The adult skill is like, well, what are the messages? And then learning what you can do about them. I I love that so much how you're describing that phenomenon that everyone talks about, that they go home and they are eight years old in their twin size bed and they're right. acting the exact same way with their brothers and their sisters and their parents that they acted when they were eight. Yet we all have adulted and we all kind of actually know our bodies and our selves. And just from a personal standpoint, I got to the age of 55 before I realized I disassociated all the time. And I had gone back and I could see myself as that eight-year-old kid leaving the house, going for long walks by myself, not interacting with anyone when I was overwhelmed. And it was only when I was in my mid-50s did I learn the tools, the somatic tools you're talking about, to actually yeah. like, oh, get back in the earth, sit your ass in the chair, feel it, tap your fingers, one, two, three, like I learned those skills. And now I can pop myself out of dissociation quite quickly. Yeah. It's really well, like just that awareness because sometimes you actually want to stay dissociated. Like like these coping strategies that we've evolved with, sometimes oh, they work for us. So yeah. if that's what's going to get you through like a really long dinner, I, who am I to argue with it? Like, <laughs> like as long as you're not actually like uh, mm -hmm. creating this kind of altar that you can't get back from and having fragmented memories, I mean, a little daydreaming could mm. be the solution that you're searching for. So I don't really shame anybody's trauma responses. I mean, I work in addiction medicine, right? So yeah. what gets some of my patients through a holiday is yeah. Let's use just of their substance the of choice. Yeah, and really. I really believe in that harm reduction model. Like the thing that gets you through it to the other side is the thing that works for you. So lots of people 
you know, drink extra alcohol because that's a socially acceptable thing to do over the holidays. Lots of people are going to binge social media, whether that's Netflix or Instagram. From a harm reduction perspective, if that's what gets you through, great. But also, what could you do to foster those innate skills that we all have around self-compassion from the shame mm. and and learning those interoceptive abilities? Like, even if you just tiptoe towards that, it opens up more possibility for you. Oh, and- my God. I love talking with you so much. I can't even <laughs> stand it. <laughs> Okay. Like my, one of my cliche lines that I say on TikTok all the time is the opposite of trauma isn't being happy all the time. The opposite of being stuck in trauma reflexes is flexibility. I'm not going to say that this, this one way of coping is wrong. And this is the only way you should be because that's actually the opposite. Yeah, so totally. the opposite is just having choice. All right. Stay flexible, everyone. Through the holidays, we're going to come back <laughs> in January of 2024. And Dr. Christine Gibson is going to talk to us more about these somatic um techniques that I I'm such a huge fan of getting back into our bodies and less in our heads and less on our screens as well. <laughs> <laughs>